Welcome to the Autism Action Update. Um, I'm Assemblyman Angelo Santa Barbara. Uh, this podcast is uh, intended to uh, inform people, keep people up to date on the work I do as chair of the New York State Assembly's subcommittee on autism spectrum disorders. And we've had uh, quite a few uh, different topics we've talked about on this show, uh, all very important uh, legislation funding, but we've also had a number of guests at this point, including my, uh, my son Michael, who is 17, uh, will be 18 soon, who was uh, actually my first guest on this show. Uh, I was able to have him on the show. Uh, it was very uh, meaningful uh, for me to have him participate. Uh, our last guest was uh, John Robinson, CEO of Our Ability, who uh, talked about his proposal uh, that we're working on together to bring a, a new training, a new kind of training center that would help those with disabilities find employment in the state of New York, uh, a groundbreaking idea uh, that uh, we hope to make a reality later this year. Um, I would encourage people to subscribe to this podcast uh, to stay up to date on these issues and much, much more. Uh, also, uh, visit my website, uh, nyassembly.gov, under Assemblyman Angel Santa Barbara, to look for different uh, things that are now available that weren't so available in the past, things like Project Lifesaver that we talked about uh, on the last podcast, uh, things like the Take Me Home program, uh, that's very helpful. And of course, the new dis autism disability ID card that uh, has been a, a, a really huge success, a tremendous response from the community that has um, uh, more than 8,000 cards have been issued through OPWDD. You can visit their website or call my office to get uh, one of these cards that's a, a really uh, uh, been a successful communication tool for so many. I've, as I, I mentioned, I've used it uh, going through airport security with my son and it's been very, very helpful in uh, facilitating that interaction. Uh, but there's a, a lot more on my website. You can subscribe to my newsletter there. The, uh, again, the uh, uh, autism update newsletter that you can get via email. Uh, we also mail out uh, a number of uh, different uh, uh, categories of uh, things happening at the Capitol and also events happening in our community. We're gonna talk about one of those events, uh, which is coming up with uh, partnership with the Autism Society of the Greater Capital Region, who also happens to be my guest here today to see uh, the executive director, Janine Crashwag, is joining me. Uh, Janine, welcome to uh, to my podcast. This is something new I'm doing. Well, thank uh, you. And thrilled I, to be here. Yeah, and, and I used to have a, a sort of a TV show format, and uh, uh, we've uh, sort of changed formats here for podcasts to give people more of an opportunity to listen on their way into work or uh, whether they're uh, uh, doing uh, uh, something at the gym or whatever the case may be. They can put on their <laughs> headphones and, and get some information about uh, uh, things happening not just autism, but uh, in general, uh, uh, legislation and funding that affect all those with developmental disabilities. We just talked about how, you know, a lot of the bills that I've worked on, um, even my autism action plan, uh, they're coined autism, but they really uh, are, uh, we're talking about all those with disabilities, really. John Robinson uh, spoke so uh, eloquently during the last podcast about how, you know, when we talk about people with disabilities, uh, you know, it's really something that, that uh, is a, a big picture item. Um, so when we talk about the Autism Society, and I wanted to have you as a guest here on the, on the podcast, be, uh, is because when my son was diagnosed at age three, actually he might have been a little old, older than three, mm -hmm. uh, we were a fairly new family, and um, we were a new family, actually we were a new family, and uh, my, the, my first child. Uh, it was a very confusing time for me, and uh, you know, we, we didn't know, my, my wife and I didn't know where to turn, and um, you know, one of the things that we talked about, uh, Janine, is that uh, there's a lot of misinformation out there. Yes. Uh, a lot of, uh, unfortunately, uh, a lot of people, uh, a lot of websites that just steer you in the wrong direction. And for whatever reason, you know, for whatever reason, there's 
just th this information is out there and it's just it's, it's something that does more harm than good and I was one of those parents where I just wanted to find out what was going on mm -hmm. and what to do next uh, and it wasn't until I found the Autism Society that I really got some clear direction uh, so do you, do you, you know I, I, I say this all the time I relive I relive that time every time somebody new comes into my office and shares that hey my, my, my daughter was just diagnosed mm -hmm. with autism mm -hmm. my son was, was diagnosed with autism and uh, I immediately mentioned the Autism Society. Thank you. Uh, now I uh, now I'm assuming you get you get the new parents, you know, in we do in in the in the uh, in your office as well. You know, t tell us what happens at that point and how the Autism Society. I know I know how you helped me, but just give an overview of what what actually sure. happens. Well, my pleasure. Um, I'm also a parent of a 31 year old now. We were in the same circumstances when Molly was diagnosed. Um, she was not diagnosed until she was nine there really wasn't any place for families to turn to that I was aware of. Uh, eventually, I made my way to the Autism Society where I was able to receive guidance on how to get a definitive uh, evaluation done. And then the next was, you know, how do we help? How do I help my child? Uh, and then ultimately it was, how do I help other families? And so that's basically what we do as the Autism Society is we are comprised of a good portion of our board, staff, our family members, adults who are on the spectrum themselves. And so we are here to represent the community and to connect them to services and to help them um, with the day-to-day -day stress of raising children, period, and the you know very specific stress that comes with raising a child with autism. Uh, and the difficulty that families have in navigating the system, and as our children are growing into adulthood, the extreme difficulty that they are having in trying to navigate services on the adult um, age uh, of the spectrum. And so we do our best to provide them with that information, that one-to-one -one support that they need, and then to craft programs that are meaningful to them. That could be simply a support group for families. It could be recreation opportunities through our sensible programming, getting families out into the community that any other family would normally attend. We go in and we take a look at the environment. We train that staff. We amend the environment to be sensory friendly, and then our families can come out and have the same enjoyment that any other family does. And then we go into employment and supporting them in college. So we really are with them for a lifetime. We are, we welcome individuals with autism, and the first thing that we do is we embrace them, and we tell them um, you know, that we're not here to change who they are necessarily, that we embrace them as the people that they are at the stage that they are at at that point in their life, and that we are a partner if they want to learn something, improve something, have a better access to their community, that is what we are here for. And uh, I know you cover quite a, uh, you cover a large area. I think 12, is it 12 counties? It is uh, 12 to 13 counties in the yeah. upstate area, and we are in the process of expanding our territory all the way from uh, the capital region down to Westchester County. So we'll really be from the Canadian borderline right down into the boroughs. And, uh, you know, you talked about uh, you know services. Uh, we talked about you talked about uh, you know a, a wide range uh, because uh, you know when when with my son when he was three, and now he's about to be eighteen, it's much different now. The, the, the needs the needs change. So uh, you know you, you also talked about how the the autism society understands that, and there's you you, you can adapt to any age uh, to steer people in the right direction. Yeah, we <coughs> um, you know we look at autism <coughs> as a uh, a cradle to grave 
situation. You know, people are born with autism, they will die with autism, and the life that they lead in between is where we need to step in to provide those services. What we're finding is that as adults are aging out of school, uh, or young adults, I should say, excuse me, um, they really are hitting that cliff. There's a complete change in services. That school bus does not come to the door any longer. And families and adults themselves are really finding themselves lost yeah. in how to understand the service system, how to access it, how to support them in the day-to-day -day living that they want to do, whether that is an individual with autism who needs a 24-7 uh, residential opportunity because they need that level of care, or somebody who is what was previously called an Asperger's range of diagnosis, who could be driving, married, working, uh, and needs assistance in navigating life at that level. So it's a very large spectrum. It's an incredibly diverse community that we have. Autism knows no boundaries in terms of the color of your skin, your financial ability, where you live. There is a difference in uh, the fact that it affects more males than females. Uh, but what we also know about females who are pouring in our doors is most of our tests are normed on males. And so we're missing our female population. And so there's a whole range of underserved communities, including communities of color, non-English speaking, um, you know, where, where English is not their primary language. These are communities that are terribly underserved. It's very difficult to find them uh, in a way that's meaningful to them and then to get those services and supports. What we also know is that their diagnostic picture is much different. Uh, if you are of Caucasian um, race, you will find that your diagnosis will come somewhere between the ages of uh, three years old, maybe a little bit younger, certainly older we know. But if you are a person of color or non-English speaking, that initial diagnosis is incredibly delayed. These children are often mislabeled as being pure behavioral issues. Mm -hmm. And so that cuts families out of receiving services. Uh, they are looked as having a behavioral issue that they could potentially control if they wanted to. And so there's a lot of stigma about children with autism and adults with autism who are, uh, again, in these fringe communities who don't have that access and are not benefiting from that early screening and diagnosis. So that's an issue we have to figure out. And, and you know, along those lines, one of the bills we worked on that uh, uh, I sponsored in the assembly that we did get, manage to pass uh, last year was the early screening bill. And uh, I mentioned my son, you know, was three, uh, maybe a little older than three. It was kind of, it was actually kind of difficult to even get a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, again, it, it was a confusing time, uh, but it was one of the things was, you know, we wanted to know what was happening, you know, what, what was happening with our mm -hmm. son. So uh, the early screening bill <clears throat> brings diagnosis to 18, uh, mandatory screening at 18 and 24 months. And that just took effect, uh, you know, because what we found is people just weren't doing this. Uh, so now uh, it's in law that it has to be done. Mm -hmm. uh, but that, that makes a big difference when the screening is done at the doctor's office and you have, uh, you know, you may think at 18 months, you know, what services are out there, but there are services. There are services, there, there, are. there are early intervention that uh, services that can make a difference. And they're the best services. And when you, when you think about what's out there and how underutilized these services are because people aren't getting diagnosed, uh, that's the tragedy in all this. And I guess one of the questions we talked about uh, before the show is how do we get, you know, we, especially in poverty stricken areas, uh, in areas of our state, uh, you know, this was talked about at the Capitol, we're seeing people that aren't diagnosed uh, that are mislabeled, as you said. Mm -hmm. uh, and how do we get 
people diagnosed uh, in these areas? How do we get the information out there? How do we educate people that it's important to get this diagnosis because there are things available uh, that people have worked on very hard to make available that can make make a difference in, in your, your child or your loved one's life? Yeah, I, you know, I really think the answer is embedding diagnostic opportunities uh, just in the early screening bill. So we know that pediatricians will now screen children between the ages of 18 months and 24 months. But we know that there are high-risk populations that exist. So particularly... Um, Many of our children and adults are misdiagnosed as having mental health issues, and we certainly can have comorbid mental health issues, but many times they'll look at that presenting behavior and they don't dig into the developmental history of that individual. So you could potentially have a, let's say, a 54-year-old who has been in the mental health system for years and years and years because of behavioral needs, and I can guarantee that that individual has most likely not been screened as a rule-out for autism. We know that in the eating disorder population, uh, that there's a very high rate of those with autism. When they started to do those cross screenings, they found that the correlation between those with an eating disorder and autism was much higher than expected. So we need to take a look at writing some policy and legislation that mandates that when a person enters uh, what we call the O agencies, Office of Mental Health, Office of Children and Family Services, Office of Persons with Developmental Disabilities, that there are um, a global screening that takes place that looks for underlying developmental disability, uh, primarily autism, and there are others that, uh, that should be screened right. for as well. And during incarceration, mental health hospitalization and treatment, uh, these are prime opportunities for us to screen. The other opportunity is once a child enters into uh, elementary and high school, if that child is flagged for behavioral issues, instead of just writing an IEP that addresses the behavioral issues, there should be a component that thoroughly diagnoses or recommends and helps that family to get a developmental screening to rule out any developmental issues. Because you can, um, and, and we certainly advocate for robust mental health treatment, uh, but when there's autism underlying that, you may have a child with a mood disorder, and, and this is my daughter, she's got both mood disorder and autism. We could treat the mood disorder, we could get her into a better place, and yet she still looked different. And she was not diagnosed until she was nine years old. So she did not benefit when she entered the mental health system from somebody who was looking to rule out a developmental disability. Mm -hmm. That could have saved us years of anxiety and angst, and it could have given her the opportunity to have early and intensive treatment that uh, we know is the most cost-effective treatment for any person with any type of disability to receive. It is cheaper, more effective, more life-altering to give a child early intervention services than it is to try to address them at 30 years old when they now have significant mental health, comorbid mental health, because of lack of treatment and support. And uh, the, the, the numbers that, you know, the latest numbers, uh, you mentioned, uh, you know, it's more prevalent in boys, the, the stats, at least the stats show that. Uh, one in 59, the numbers went from one in 68 in 2012 to one in 59, and the numbers have doubled uh, yeah. with people being diagnosed with autism in less than 20 years. Uh, what do you think of those numbers? Is it, you know, and there's been some debate on this issue, whether it's better diagnosis or whether there are just more people 
being affected by autism? What, what, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, yes and yes. <coughs> okay. um, so we know that we are much better at screening for autism across the spectrum, and that means that we recognize it, and I hate to use the word mild, but those who have uh, what would have been called an Asperger's diagnosis, uh -huh. These are individuals by the criteria of that diagnosis who had intact intellectual abilities from average to above average. And they are often mislabeled because you know, their, their verbal ability is very high. But when you look at their performance with autism uh, as part of their spectrum diagnosis, they're still suffering around issues of navigating life, employment, uh, relationships, social opportunities, community integration. Uh, so my daughter uh, very graciously said to me, uh, I don't have mild autism, you just experience my autism mildly, and pointed out to me, and I thought that was a really um, humbling moment for me to say, you know, we have to really look at autism in its mildest forms uh, as not just writing these folks off and saying, well, you can, you can deal, you can hack it, uh, because they really are struggling also. But when we are looking um, at those kids that we missed because of our diagnostic criteria has changed, it does not satisfy the answer as to why the explosive numbers are happening. So clearly something else is going on. Yeah. People are working, the medical field is working, science field is working very hard to try to better understand uh, what is causing autism. Many people now talk about autisms, that we will find that there are many paths to many different types of autism. Uh, and I, I would personally agree with that, and that's just my personal opinion, is that we will find uh, both genetic links and I think we will find some environmental causes for what's causing autism, but that's not just autism when we are dumping chemicals into our environment um, in every possible way that we can. We have to expect that we will have some developmental issues in our population, which we're certainly seeing. So there's an increase, not only in autism, but other behavioral disorders and other types of developmental and genetically based disorders. So it's, um, I wanna be clear in terms of the environmental impact that I am not referring to vaccines. What science is showing right now is that vaccines are not the root cause of autism. We do know that some children have been injured by vaccines, uh, but I want to unequivocally say, you know, that autism is not caused as a single source by vaccines. That is proved over and over again by science, and we are now um, witnessing some of the consequences of losing herd immunity and children. Uh, somehow it got into our culture that it was better for your child to um, not be vaccinated and risk having uh, a deadly disease such as measles versus having autism. And as the parent of a child with autism, I have to say um, it is unequivocally not true for us. We love our daughter, as I know you love your son, and I can't imagine losing my child to measles because of the fear of autism. I think that that's an issue that we really need to take a look at as a society and make some different decisions about protecting our population and our youth and our population. And uh, that is, uh, <clears throat> you mentioned that, and that is a topic of discussion up at the Capitol uh, right now at the, during this time uh, with the measles outbreaks that we uh, outbreaks that we have seen uh, across the 
across the uh, the state. So that is something that uh, I think well, the, the debate will continue. Yes. Uh, there will be further discussion on this and uh, maybe a future podcast will we'll, we'll, uh, uh, give everyone an update on what's happening with that. I know there's a couple of uh, different pieces of legislation that uh, the uh, legislature is considering at this point, uh, and I'm not sure what the what the fate of those bills are. Um, the, uh, the other thing I wanted to point out in that report from the Center for Disease Control uh, that uh, said that uh, most, what, what it showed, it updated the numbers, but it also showed that most uh, kids diagnosed uh, were uh, beyond well beyond age three yeah. uh, and most of them were diagnosed at age around age five or so uh, big a long way from 18 months yes uh, so way you know, too long yeah and then to, you know I, I don't we add to it the people that are just not that not have, haven't received the diagnosis so that number could be much higher uh, at some point so it is it is something that <clears throat> we need to work on to find out you know how we can get a better make sure everyone is screened or is a uh, does get a diagnosis yeah. uh, if they do in fact uh, if they are in fact on the spectrum or have some other uh, related yeah. condition yeah. it's a public health issue um, and if you think back to the days when you know they were dealing with um, you know some critical public health issues they went into the communities and so when we look at a community who is not coming to our door we have to really look at where in the community they are showing up and oftentimes it's a faith community. So could we potentially push in some screening opportunities, work with the faith communities to say, you know, would you on a Sunday after your services allow uh, for some basic screening to take place, um, not mandatory, voluntary, <coughs> but these are opportunities for us. So we now have pediatricians who are looking. Uh, we can use other community assets to push into and to get those, uh, at least a screening into those communities, kids are at churches, they are at daycare centers, they are in the parks. There are many programs where we have the opportunity to push in some screening opportunities. Uh, and again, we know pediatricians are looking at 18 to 24 months, but I still say that there's opportunities, you know, for that five-year-old who may be in a daycare, you know, or, or making that transition to do that final screening before they head into grade school. And then again, we need to work with our schools to be more robust at screening themselves. They don't have the mechanism in place. They may have a suspicion and then starts a long process about talking to a family about potential IEP services, which are special education services. But I don't believe that there is a mandate right now for them to do a developmental screening at the elementary school level. Uh, that could catch a lot of our kids and then get them. It would be the second wave of making sure those who were missed in that 18 to 24 toddler years that we could have another opportunity to pick up those kids who were missed at the elementary school level. And uh, when we talk about services, uh, there, are, there are a wide range of, of services that we've uh, talked about in the past. And I also want to point out to the listeners that it's never too late, you know, no matter how old your child is, to come to the Autism Society. Uh, you know, it, it doesn't or matter. if you're an adult, yeah. he suspects. <clears throat> it doesn't matter what age. So it's, it's never too late. If you're just listening to this podcast now, they could come over to your office on State Street or, or contact you by phone. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's never too late to get information and find out what's out there. So I encourage people to do that. Don't think that, hey, okay, I'm, I'm beyond the age of whatever and I, I, I missed out. It's never too late. There's always uh, ways that we can, we can help. So I encourage people to do that. But one of the things that we talked about is, uh, uh, and this was a topic of discussion in the budget uh, this year, was uh, what's called ABA. So it's, it's Applied Behavioral Analysis. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is something that's not new. 
Uh, this no. is something that's that's actually been around for a very long time. Yes. Uh, this is one of the services uh, that if, if you have a diagnosis, this is one of the services that's been available for a very long time. Uh, but again, if you don't have a diagnosis, it doesn't get in your IEP and you don't have access to this. Right. And so we've seen a change over the years. Uh, and I just want to point out ABA is one service. It happens to be an evidence-based service. Uh, but it is not the only service, and so we firmly believe that families deserve to be educated about, um, because not, not one program or type of service or support fits all families. So I think for a family who wants to utilize ABA, what we've seen is um, an increasing understanding of what that means. We've seen uh, a maturity in how ABA services are delivered, and we'd like to encourage families to explore additional science-based promising practices as well. But in the meantime, right now, New York State private insurance, uh, within the last couple of years through the insurance mandate, uh, decided to pay for ABA services for those with private insurance only. And it has just been recently um, that Medicaid through New York State, and this is a recent budget uh, amendment, that New York State children who are covered through Medicaid as their primary insurance can now also receive ABA reimbursable insurance uh, through uh, Medicaid for ABA services. That means that over 4,000 children had gone without that level of service, which is critically needed for those, specifically those with significant autism, uh, simply for the fact that one child had a public health insurance and another child had a private health insurance. Now we've equaled that playing field and children both with private insurance and Medicaid insurance have access to the same services so there's no longer a discrimination basis for children who are receiving Medicaid and also needed ABA services. And as you said that was a development in this year's uh, budget. Correct. Uh, there was uh, funding allocated for that specific purpose which is uh, something we've been looking for for a long time and finally we're at the point where we're seeing some progress made on this issue uh you know and i, and I look at it i have a timeline in front of me uh that uh it, there's, there's quite a history in this and a lot of court cases that had to happen and decisions had to be made uh there was some federal actions but then there was some state actions that had to happen and uh you look at it, I, i'm also looking at a map that shows not every state has this type of coverage mm -hmm. Now, we're still working very hard to legislate, um, and there's quite a few good national groups and then statewide groups who are working diligently to make sure that no child is left behind. Um, as a New Yorker who pays taxes, the thought that, you know, the difference between somebody with autism receiving services is solely based on their financial ability um, you know, doesn't sit well with me uh, as the executive director of an autism society, as the parent of an adult with autism. There should be no dividing line. If your child lives in New York State or any other state and requires that level of service, um, you know, who's going to be built for insurance should never be the barrier to a child receiving the services that they need. So I'm very proud of New York State that we have this component now and that we can serve all of our families uh, who have a child or an adult who needs the level of ABA services um, and they can get what they need. And this is, uh, this is a new development and again it was just, uh, you know, in the, in the past state budget uh, was just something that's it's still being talked about, <clears throat> still being discovered by some people actually. Some people, not everybody knows about this so it's fairly new so uh, if, if there's listeners out there that have questions I encourage you to uh, contact my office, contact the Autism Society uh, and you can get more information about what this means 
uh, for many families uh, across across the state. Uh, there again, you said we have still have more work to do because uh, not every state has this coverage. So as a as a, a country, I think we still have more work to do in some of these states that still don't have this type of coverage. Yeah. Uh, which you know, ABA is as you said, it's been proven. Uh, something that's not new, uh, something that's been around. Something it is considered an evidence-based practice. Yep. Uh, you know, the next thing that we're going to have to look at as these policy issues move forward is to make sure that their implementation issues follow along. Right. We still have many providers who will decline to take Medicaid <coughs> or manage Medicaid. So, you know, the next step is uh, now that there is a mandate for them to serve those families is to make sure that that actually happens and that the system is prepared for that reimbursement model and that no family is told, well, you're eligible for ABA services, but unfortunately we have no providers who will accept your insurance coverage. And that is an issue that we hear all the time. Medicaid families work harder and longer to protect the rights that they have. Um, again, leads to a child or an adult with autism not being able to access the services that they need. So the legislation is is the first step, and congratulations, that's a wonderful thing. Yeah, it's a, it was and then a, we're confident that you know the implementation will follow. And uh, you know, you mentioned IEP, and uh, you know we've experienced we've experienced our own my family's experienced difficulty with IEPs and. Uh, uh, there's just a component where you really have to fight for yes. these services. Uh, there, it's almost, it's just not a given that these services are going to be approved. Uh, so, and it's amazing to me how many parents come into my office and say, uh, either they don't know what an IEP is, or they just haven't got, haven't received the services that they should be receiving. Uh, you know, this is also a problem. I think this is something where you know uh, you almost have to be aggressive to be able to get the services that your your child needs and it's just it's 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 something that again not is not it's not uh, uniform as to what qualifies for these services f by school district by school district some families go without and some families some families manage to get the services. This is another issue. This is another real problem that needs to be addressed. Oh, it creates disparity in our communities. Um, you have to be you have to have a certain amount of ability to negotiate, whether it's on the education side or, or if your child is now in their adult years, you have to be able to navigate the system. And it is a complex system uh, from receiving the diagnosis to finding the right agency to provide services and then advocating, whether that's the education department, your local school, OPWDD, mental health, um, you know, we're asking families to pick up a burden of expertise that no other families are being asked to carry. If you do not have a child with a disability, uh, you know, you're not dealing with IEP, so you have to be educated in what the special education law is. Then you have to be educated in negotiation skills, because you're absolutely right. There are gatekeepers on the finances, as there should be for every school district and throughout the state and then on the federal level. Uh, and just to, um, interesting fact in case folks don't know, that um, IDEA, which is the federal education law, is still not fully funded on the federal level. And that already puts states and localities at a disadvantage. They are trying to follow this mandate and are tremendously underfunded. Then you add to it a school district in which they are surviving in an area where they are economically challenged. And again, you are taking away resources from them. 
and yet they have a heavy load of children who have behavioral developmental issues um, language issues and families who are stressed above the average norm they're battling economic disparity could be employment disparity they're living in neighborhoods where there are not a lot of resources for diagnosis and so it's an unfair burden for families to have to deal with when you get into the adult years um, there's a whole new language that you need to learn, new rules, new laws, new ways of navigating, uh, and you also have an emerging adult um, that you want to help them to do self-advocacy. So for families who are trying to manage this, it's just a tremendous uh, learning load and then implementation load. And a lot of families just simply cannot do it. Many of those families come to us, they come to you expressing yeah. their dissatisfaction. <clears throat> Uh, but the time that it takes to navigate and then advocate in those systems can be tremendous. Yeah, and and that's uh, and that's and when they uh, do come to my office, that's one of the things. The, one of the resources is uh, the Autism Society. It's almost like a a one on one class where you have to learn how to not give up and uh, fight for what your child needs and make sure that they, you're not giving up on on getting access to these services. ABA is is one of them. Uh, so having this available now and expanded and with the coverage. You do have to be able to get it uh, for your child through the school district. Uh, so uh, very important. We're going to talk more about that, actually. That's, that's more of a topic uh, for another podcast. Uh, we hope to have you back at some point. <clears throat> Before we end, we do <clears throat> we do want to talk about uh, these little duckies that I have on my desk here. <laughs> I know that the Autism Society, is, uh, <clears throat> the Autism Society works on donations. Uh, we do. And um, sometimes it's not so easy to raise funds. But uh, we managed to work together to form uh, what's called the annual Duck Derby now. Yes. Uh, and for those that don't know, it's a, it's a duck race. Uh, so we uh, put, race, uh, put race ducks uh, on, a, on a, we've done it on several different water bodies at this point. Now I believe we have it at the, the Mohawk Harbor. That's right. Uh, so uh, why don't we just talk about that so people that do want to support the Autism Society can do so. Sure. Uh, this is actually our fourth annual Duck Derby for Autism. Uh, one of the reasons that we do these events is we are finding that small family-run organizations, 501c3s like the Autism Society, are often cut out of the Medicaid funding stream, and that leaves us having to raise funds in other ways. Uh, so a few years ago, I was very lucky to have both you and Ray Legier approach us and say, you know, we'd like to really help run this event. Uh, it's, uh, and they introduced the Duck Derby, and we at first had to really reassure people that we were indeed not putting live ducks into the water, but that they were rubber ducks. And so <laughs> there's always a lot of fun questions about this. So indeed, they are rubber ducks. They are put into the Mohawk Harbor. Um, rumor has it this year that it's going to be a spectacular duck launch and I, I won't give away all of the details but uh you definitely want to be there folks it's june 15th it's at the mohawk harbor there will be a lot of sensory friendly activities for families and kids to engage in food trucks we're also partnering this year with the uh, adirondack aquatic center which hopes to bring in an olympic um, swimming facility to our area very important to our community we have one of the highest drowning rates um, of any community and so anything that we can do to uh, alleviate the drowning risk for our children and water is a great um, therapeutic um, method for our kids as well but they are also hosting a Guinness world breaking world record breaking event uh, at the Duck Derby this year they hope to have at least 3,000 people wearing swim caps uh, to break that Guinness world record so you want to be a part of that as well 
and so there's going to be a huge crowd we hope you'll come out purchase some ducks you can find them on our website www.asgcr.org you can find us on facebook as well just pop in uh, annual duck derby for autism we should come up and these are critically needed funds this is how we provide the support and expertise that we can to families this is how we make sure that our young adults who are emerging and our older adults have employment opportunities for college opportunities for community integration we literally could not keep our doors open without these types of events we hope that they will be fun for you but they critically support the autism community in our area yeah and it's uh, and we've had this event several years uh several years now and uh this uh, seems to be uh the, the biggest event so far with a number of things happening so uh hopefully uh people will uh, uh check it out this year uh supporting supporting a good cause uh but also again a sensory friendly um environment uh and if you haven't checked out the mohawk harbor uh, it's open uh, and it's absolutely spectacular. It's gorgeous, uh, so breathtaking views, uh, and it's a great place to uh, bring a family, bring your family, and uh, enjoy some time together with other families yes. that are also affected by autism. It's okay. always great to see uh, families come together. Uh, they uh, they share these challenges. It's it's that's 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 the the. the, the the, the nice thing about events like this is that you realize you're not alone, and certainly my family has felt that way ever since we found the Autism Society and been able to connect with other families. Part of that is uh, it's support, uh, you know, finding yeah, other families course, yes. that are going through the same uh, challenges. It really is uh, it's great for, uh, uh, for families to come together. So uh, I want to thank you for being on uh, the podcast. Welcome. Yeah, this my is pleasure. It's, it's still fairly new. We have uh, a few different uh, we've had a few different guests. Uh, you're, you're, uh, one of uh, one of uh, several guests I've had on the on the show so far. We hope to have you back. We do want to continue the conversation on IEPs because I think that is uh, uh, an issue worthy of, of further discussion. And uh, you know, I'm not sure exactly what uh, solutions uh, lie ahead or how we uh, educate our parents. Uh, but there's certainly there's a couple of topics we hit on that I think we could discuss a little further. So, uh, Janine, we hope to have you back on the show. Uh, but for now, we're going to sign off. I encourage people to visit my website, uh, www.nyassembly.gov. You can find me under Assemblyman Angel Santa Barbara. There you can sign up for uh, my Autism Action Alerts, which is a newsletter uh, that gives updates on things like the ABA funding uh, and things like the, uh, the Autism Disability ID card or the screening and any developments. We send out an email and you would be able to know about things like the Duck Derby. So I encourage you to sign up for that newsletter. Uh, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, uh, and we try to do this weekly. Uh, so keep people up to date. It's a great way to stay up to date if you're listening, if you're driving in. Uh, you can download the podcast and stay up to date on the latest uh, developments uh, for uh, legislation, funding, and any developments that are related to autism or uh, other conditions as, as well. It's not just autism. We talk about all uh, people with disabilities on this on this podcast. Uh, so for now, we're going to sign off, and we hope to see you uh, next week when we'll do our next podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having us.